Welcome back to the Buddhist Recovery Network Podcast. I'm Thomas Valentine. If you're new to listening, be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes. This week we are presenting a talk from the Buddhist Recovery Network Academy, which is a live Dharma talk that we offer the first Sunday of every month. This month we had author Joan Tolufson on the program. Next month we have Shahara Godfrey, who is one of the core teachers at East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, California. I had the pleasure of meeting her while I was down there for the Regional Buddhist Recovery Summit five months ago. Speaking of which, we have the International Buddhist Recovery Summit coming up in a few weeks. I received an email today from George, and there are limited spaces left, so if you are interested in coming, please do register soon. We do not have the summit like this very often. This is the third summit in 10 years. The last one took place, I think, two years ago, before that, uh, quite a while ago. It's a pretty historic event for Buddhist recovery communities, teachers, peers, and leaders from around the world to all come together under one roof. If you are unable to make it this year, consider offering Donna to help those that have applied for scholarship. You can find out more about the summit at BuddhistRecoverySummit.org or offer Donna at BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash donate. I'll post links in the description. Okay, let me introduce Robin Smith, introducing our teacher this week, Joan Tollefson. So just a little bit about Joan. Uh, She's a writer and a teacher living in Southern Oregon. And her down-to-earth approach emphasizes awareness and presence. Her main teacher was Tony Packer, but she's been with a number of Buddhist teachers and also teachers of Advaita. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. She's just completed her fifth book, which is coming out later this year on the subject of aging, dying, living, and the beauty of everything falling apart. And the title of the book is Death, the End of Self-Improvement. She offers individual meetings, and there's information about those on her website, which I'll also put into the chat field. And from her website, there are links to her Facebook page where she posts articles regularly. So you may want to check this out um, down the line. And um, yes, so I want to welcome Joan and let her know, uh, so appreciative to have you here today. Okay, well, thank you, Robin, and welcome everyone. Um, Let's start by taking a few minutes to be in silence together. And just simply being here, not trying to get into any special state not trying to get rid of anything that might be showing up. If there's tension or restlessness, that's fine. Just allow it to be here. And 
and just feeling the breathing, not trying to control it or change it in any way, but just feeling it. And hearing the sounds, if you're somewhere where there are sounds, the sound of this voice, the sounds of traffic or birds or wind, whatever you might be hearing. Feeling sensations throughout the body the belly, the chest, the face, the whole body. So, recovery from addiction and compulsion. I think the first thing that I want to say is that I feel that every human being is a completely unique expression of the universe. And I don't think that there's one recovery method that works for everyone. I believe that multiple factors can play into bringing about addiction or compulsion and different ways of approaching it can work for different people. So I'll be offering my own approach, what I talk about with people but I certainly don't see it as the only possible approach. And I also feel that addiction recovery is a, is a, it's in a very alive field. A lot of people are looking at it in new ways, both in the meditation world and the scientific community and the medical community and the alternative, alternative healing community. So to stay open, to not think we know everything there is to know about it or that what we already think about it is, definitely true, but to remain open to the possibility of seeing things freshly and maybe discovering something new. I think that's very important. So my own approach to addiction is 
basically just bringing awareness or open attention to the whole unfolding pattern as it happens. And so let's take cigarette smoking as an example. So when you feel that urge for a cigarette, and again, feel free to fill in a drink or a drug or food or whatever the addiction or the compulsion is, when that urge arises, if possible, just take some time to feel the urge. Not trying to repress it, not trying to get rid of it, but just allowing yourself to completely feel the urge and the sense of urgency. And to do this non-judgmentally and with a spirit of curiosity and interest, really wondering, what is this? What's it like? Where is it in the body? What does it feel like? In giving it open attention, does it change? Does it shift in any way? What's it like? And also to really notice the thoughts that go with it. What is thought saying? They notice all kinds of thoughts like, you need a cigarette. I shouldn't be smoking. I want a cigarette. I can't stop. I should be able to stop. All kinds of thoughts like that. And just to see them as thoughts, as these conditioned little um, uh, I'm uh, losing the word senility. <laughs> anyway, just to see them as these conditioned blips from the brain, these thoughts, and to see them as thoughts, and to feel the whole thing in the body. And, and to do this for however long you can or however long it's interesting. Maybe, maybe you can do that for an hour. Maybe you can do it for five minutes. Maybe you can do it for one minute. Maybe you can do it for just 10 seconds. It doesn't really matter how long, but just take some amount of time to just feel the urge. And of course, we have the the sense that this urge is unbearable, that if I don't extinguish it by lighting up or whatever it is that I'm wanting to do, it will kill me in some way. So to really explore, does it actually kill me? Or is it survivable? In fact, in just being with it, maybe it even goes away after a while. You don't know. And then if there's still the urge to have a cigarette, then just to really pay attention to the whole act of smoking, the excitement over getting the package, 
Maybe you have a secret stash somewhere if you're trying to quit. So the excitement of going to the stash, how does that feel in the body? And then pulling out the cigarette, lighting it up, inhaling, exhaling, the whole event of smoking. Just really do it with attention, with awareness and see how it actually feels in the body. And how do you feel afterwards? Is there a sense of satisfaction and relief? And if there is, how long does that last? Just to really tune in to the whole, the whole thing. And this approach, which is basically mindfulness approach, this approach, awareness is, awareness shines light on what's happening. Awareness is like unconditional love. It works on things by revealing them and dissolving them, as opposed to willpower, which is a whole different thing. That's based in thought, it's based on the future, trying to get somewhere in the future, trying to get rid of what's here now and trying to get somewhere in the future that's different. And trying to do that is actually part of the addiction. It's a way of moving away from what is into what we think would be better. So trying to stop is actually different from stopping. <laughs> and so, you know, this is to bathe the whole event of smoking or drinking or whatever it is in awareness is to bathe it in unconditional love, to shine light on it. And it's focused on the present moment, not on what we want to get to in the future. And that's really the key. Now is the key because the only time we can actually stop an addiction, the only time we could wake up from the story of our life or all of our destructive thoughts, the only time that any of this can actually happen is now. In fact, the, the only thing there ever is, is now. No matter what time of day it is, no matter what year it is, no matter what season it is, no matter how old we are, it's always now. So to really be now is crucial. One of, the, one of the things that, well, the, the other thing I just want to say about awareness versus willpower is that willpower is based in a kind of deficiency story about what I lack, what's wrong with me. Whereas awareness, again, is based on love. It accepts everything non-judgmentally. It allows everything to be as it is. So that's a whole different movement. It really moves from wholeness rather than from a sense of lack. And one of the very interesting things that when I sobered up from alcohol back in 1973, one of the very interesting things my therapist did with me um, one of the things that she, one of the modalities she was into was gestalt. And she had me literally move back and forth between two different chairs. And in one chair, I was the voice that wanted to smoke. I was actually trying to smoke, to quit smoking at the time. In one chair, I was the voice that wanted to smoke. 
And in the other chair, I was the voice that wanted to quit. And as I sat in the first chair, I would tell Joan why she should smoke. And in the other chair, I would tell Joan why she should quit. And it was so interesting to actually hear what each side was saying. You know, the side that was telling Joan to quit was the rational, healthy adult. It was saying, you know, this is cigarettes is too, it's too expensive. It's costing you a fortune. You're going to get cancer. It's ruining your health. You should quit. The other side was like the wild, rebellious, adventurous child. You know, it was saying, lighten up, light up. It's sexy to smoke. You're going to die anyway. Have fun. Have a cigarette. Um, and what I realized was that both of these sides were important parts of me. I didn't really want to squelch the wild, adventurous child flying in the face of convention. I simply wanted to find a better way for that side of me to come out than through smoking or drinking. <laughs> um, but to really discover that was, was very helpful. So that's just something you might want to play with to really listen and really hear. Um, where the addiction is coming from in that sense, because you may find there is something really positive behind it. And then is there another way to manifest that positive part other than through the addiction? And I think the final thing I want to bring out before we go to questions is, um, is the perspective that, that everything belongs, whatever is here, it belongs. It's part of what is, obviously. <laughs> and as Thich Nhat Hanh so beautifully put it, no mud, no lotus. Or as Leonard Cohen put it, the crack is where the light gets in. Um, you can't have the light without the dark. And I think we can all look back on our lives and see that the things that seemed like terrible problems in some way were also sources of wisdom, compassion, humor, intelligence, etc. Uh, I know for me, uh, drinking, I you know, addictive drinking, and a compulsive finger biting um, habit that I actually that still flares up, um, have both been incredible teachers for me, and I wouldn't really want to have not had those experiences because they have informed my life in really important ways. And yes, I mean, I went to some very scary places as a drunk and it's amazing that I even survived being a drunk <laughs> given what I did, but um, I wouldn't want to erase that either. So to really get that the little me that we think we are is not in control. It's not running this whole show. There is a larger happening here and the dark is part of the light and they go together and you can't have light without dark. You can't, there are no one-sided coins. You can't have only bliss. You can't have one side without the other. And so I think that's really important and helpful. Like for me with my finger biting compulsion, which still happens, the, the way that something has really shifted is that I used to feel great shame about it. I really felt like it, it meant something about me. It meant what a failure I am and all that. I don't feel that way anymore. I mean, it would be nice if it completely fell away. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But if I'm doing it to the day I die, I'm okay with that now. It's like, um, it's a happening of the universe. 
and I obviously can't control it. Sometimes there's the ability to just be with the sensations and it falls away. Sometimes it naturally falls away for periods of time. Um, but sometimes it flares up and it happens and I can't seem to stop. So just to see that as a manifestation of life um, instead of as some shameful thing that means something about me has been immensely liberating. And, um, and it's obvious that if you look at many, many spiritual teachers, I mean, the Sargadatta smoked during satsang, even as he was dying of throat cancer. Alan Watts was dead drunk while he gave those beautiful talks, apparently. You know, there's, it, there, there is no one without some kind of human imperfections and flaws. Um, and so to embrace it in some way, which doesn't mean to, you know, watch the mind because the mind can say, oh, Alan Watts did it. It's okay. I'll just keep drinking. <laughs> oh, Nisargadatta was smoking. Must be okay. I'll just keep smoking. No, that's a thought that's justifying and, and uh, a slippery thought. But, uh, but to see deeply that what it is, is. And it can't be any other way in this moment than how it is. And uh, sometimes we can't stop. It's just a fact sometimes, because really everything emerges from the totality. I mean, our urges, our desires, our impulses, they come from, from where? From the totality, our thoughts, and in any given moment, whether the urge to smoke is stronger or weaker than the urge to stop is not really in the control of the little me. But the more we bring awareness to the whole situation, the more it shifts by itself. That's been my experience. Not necessarily on the timetable we would like. Um, you know, I'm still biting my fingers and I'm 71 years old. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm not drinking anymore, <laughs> you know, so it, it, it does shift and, and the finger biting has changed dramatically. I mean, it's gotten much, it happens less frequently, less severely, it falls away for periods of time. So it has changed. Um, so I guess that's pretty much what I'd like to say and then open it up to see if anyone does anyone have any questions or anything they'd like to ask? And if, and, and since there's a number of people here, um, try to keep them concise and to the point, if you do. Um, I'm, I'm come on too, just because I would like to field the questions and also um, bring folks on live if you'd like to come on and say hello and present a question. Um, I could kick it off. Um, uh, I think it would be great to, um, well, I have a couple of things in mind, but one of the things I was hoping that you could share with us is a little bit about um, maybe some of the major themes of your new book um, and how that might relate to uh, recovery being here and now. Mm. Well, I, um, 
I will be talking. I, I talk in three of my books a lot about addiction, bare bones meditation, awaken the heartland and <clears throat> nothing to grasp. I'll have major sort of sections on addiction. Um, but this book may have, may have a section on addiction. I'm not quite sure yet because we're still in the final editing. Um, but really, the, the, everything I've been talking about, awareness, open attention, applies to everything. I mean, it applies to the situations that arise in aging. And what I'm trying to do in the book is, is um, present a kind of um, a picture of aging that's realistic. You know, I don't, I'm not writing one of those books about how you can still um, you can still hang glide and uh, and have hot sex even if you're 90 years old. It's it's a book that you know gets into some of the gritty realities that happen to people as we age, like you know um, cognitive loss, loss of bowel control or bladder control. Um, you know all the different things that 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 can happen, and. Um, and I will write, be writing about, I, I, had a, I had a major cancer in the last few years, and I'm fine now, but, but, um, but that's another thing that often happens as you're aging. So it's attempting to put a kind of realistic picture of aging, but not as something to be horrified about, but as something to really embrace. And um, because it really has occurred to me that, that, aging and awakening are very similar in some way. They're both kind of a process of things falling away. Um, and, um, and there's something incredibly liberating about actually everything falling away, you know? Um, and then dying, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, not because I believe in heaven or reincarnation or anything, but because I see this one whole happening and I see death as just birth and death as kind of arbitrary dividing lines in a seamless unfolding that, that ne never really begins or ends. So, um, so, um, and I write in the book about being with my mother, a lot about being with my mother in her final years. I, I moved to Chicago to be with her for eight years. Um, and then also about other people dying and um, facing my own death and so on. So that's all in the book. Um, and the end of self-improvement part is really um, kind of what we've touched on a little bit already that, that of course I'm not saying, you know, that we should just wallow in, uh, <laughs> you know, just stay drunk, smoke cigarettes, you know, let, racism and sexism and animal, animal abuse continue and all that. I'm, but I'm pointing to the difference between some kind of genuine transformation that comes out of wholeness, out of awareness, and the kind of self-improvement that comes out of uh, thinking and out of deficiency stories and out of this sort of desperate effort to prop up the little me and make it into somebody okay. And all these ideas we have about what, how I should be and what I should do. And, um, you know, I think that sort of self-doubt, self-hatred is pervasive in our culture. So it's really the end. When people hear that title, death, the end of self-improvement, most people, you know, they just really laugh and they find it in some way very liberating. Cause I think, you know, we're enmeshed in a culture that's constantly, um, kind of telling us 
that we have to do something and be something and become somebody and and really aging is all of that is falling away you know <laughs> so um, and that's not a bad thing that's it's a beautiful part of life and instead of avoiding it by I mean I'm all for you know if you want to go skydiving and stuff that's great I'm all for you know I'm not saying don't do that but <laughs> but I don't think that for me the way the way to embrace aging is not about you know trying to defy age uh, and stay young forever, which is what our culture, of course, wants to do. I mean, we you know everybody's into Botox and <laughs> everything you know just erase old age. I mean, there's even like anti-aging workshops and things. It's crazy. So so um, so I'm about embracing old age and death. And I, maybe somebody had a question there, so maybe I'll let that. So um, before we have the question, we, we do have a, um, someone, a participant that's with us that would like to offer a share. Are you all right with that? Sure. Okay. As long, I would just ask you to keep it brief because there may be other people who also want to speak. So, you know, don't tell your whole life story. <laughs> okay. So, uh, there he is, Jerome. Jerome is going to come on. I'm going to invite him to turn his video on. Okay. And, then, uh, and then we'll take a question from uh, Nikki. Okay. Thanks. Hi, Jerome. Can you hear me? Hello? I hear you. Okay. No, I, I didn't have a question. I just had kind of a share on what you had you uh, mentioned about almost like um, embracing both both sides of, of yourself in terms of, of the things that you're working on and then also the, the, the Buddhist kind of approach to that. So I, I just, I identify with that. And I think mm. it's more of a loving kindness kind of 50-50 way with myself. And uh, it, it's nice. It's, it's more, has more of a compassionate kind of tone, which... I find for myself to be beneficial. So that's all I had. Thank you. Thank you. That's, that's yes, definitely. It's compassionate and uh, compassion for ourselves and for everyone, really, because we're all doing the best we can in every moment. So, um, Nikki, is uh, did you want to come live or did you want to? Um, Put your question into chat. I'm not sure what you wanted to do. I'm okay. I can talk on here. Thank you. Sorry, okay. I couldn't work out the mute. <laughs> Thank you so much for your talk. Um, my question might, I'm just trying to gather my thoughts around what my question is. My question is that um, I've been free from active addiction, as in substances, for a while, but what it's left is. Um, quite a frightening clarity of my fear quite frightening um and and i was listening to you talk about the compulsion to not go with it is really strong at the moment for instance um i think for the la and i think it's premenopausal talking about aging i think it's my fear and anxiety is, is linked to that as well but because i've um the kind of um, addictive behaviours are, are no longer there for me to self-soothe. I'm struggling with really bad anxiety and panic attacks, which I've never had in all my life at all. Um, so, so my question is, 
I'm not sure what my question is. I think I just want you to tell me what that means, actually. <laughs> I think well, that's what I'm doing, yeah. I just, help is my question. What would you, what can I do about it? Because it's compulsive to go into my fearful thoughts about what's going to happen to me. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it does. And you mentioned, you know, um, menopause, perimenopause and all that the hormonal changes that we go through and, and men go through some kind of hormonal change apparently too, but with women, it's very dramatic. And, you know, that has a lot of effects. There's a lot of things that play into anxiety and depression and mind states in general. So, um, but, um, you know, I would just suggest the same thing as, um, as how I was approaching addiction itself, which is just to be with the, fear if you can just be with the anxiety um and and we might think oh well i am being with it because i'm afraid <laughs> you know obviously i'm being with it but in fact what we're actually doing is really not being with it a lot of the time we're like thinking about it thinking about how do i get rid of it uh thinking about this is a problem thinking about i hate this you know and instead of actually just fully feeling it in the body just if you can just take time to just be with the anxiety or the fear in the body and really feel it. Where is it in the body? What does it feel like? And also to see the thoughts as thoughts, you know, that whatever they are like, Oh my God, what if this happens? What if that happens? You know, blah, blah, blah. And to see them as thoughts. And, and also, you know, as Jerome was mentioning to be compassionate when you can't do that, you know, when, when the mind sort of, runs wild and there's just anxiety um not to beat ourselves up for not to give it you know it doesn't mean anything that's the point it doesn't really mean anything you know we take these things personally and think that they mean something about me but actually they don't mean anything they're just weather they're like you know the same way that the weather in seattle is different from the weather in in uh, albuquerque <laughs> You know, it's just different conditions, different weather. And we don't take that personally. We don't think, well, Seattle's bad because it's clouded up. And Albuquerque's really enlightened because it's sunny and clear. I mean, <laughs> you know, and what we do that with ourselves. We take it personally. We give it meaning. And, um, and it's, just, it's just what is. It's just weather. And there's a lot of things that play into it. You know, I, um, I'm personally not in any way opposed to uh, medications if they're needed also. Um, I know in many spiritual circles, you know, you're supposed to resolve everything through meditation and mindfulness and awareness and enlightenment. But in my experience, some people, you know, sometimes we need other things, you know, whatever that might be. So I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying I don't see anything wrong with things like that if they're needed. Um, I actually take something called L-theanine, which my last therapist uh, suggested to me for anxiety, um, which she also had, and she took it, and, and it's just an amino acid or something. You get it at the, you know, the health food store, L-theanine, and uh, it's, 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 it's made from green tea, and I take uh, 200 milligrams a day with my vitamins, and uh, um, it seems to have helped. I mean, I don't, I don't really feel anxiety anymore very much at all, if at all. Um, and I don't know what to attribute that to because, you know, things come and go and and then we have stories of cause and effect like this is better because I did this, but we don't really know. So 
I would say just do whatever works, but you know, mainly just be curious about the fear and the anxiety, really feel it in the body, really see the thoughts and notice what triggers it, notice what sets it off. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned next week for a conversation between Gary Sanders and Vimala Sara as they discuss the origins of refuge recovery, the controversial usage of psychedelics in addiction recovery treatment, and why the Brahma-viharas, or heart practices, are so important. It was quite the conversation to record, so stay tuned next week. May we all find what brings us peace and stillness in our lives and share those tools and practices with our communities. Take care, everyone.